Welcome to Peace and Resist. If you can hear this, that means you are awesome and appreciated. Kedro here riding solo. Adrian will be back soon. This week I spoke with Rick Rosner. He's regarded as having the second highest IQ in the world. He's worked jobs as a bouncer, stripper, TV game show writer, and almost 12 years with the Jimmy Kimmel Show. We talk about his parallel to Einstein and his theory of everything that he calls IC, or informational cosmology. We get into that theory... We also talk, well, we start by talking about his brother, who is the only Jewish Marine comedian. Rick tells us what it takes to make a TV pilot, and he even has a great story about a one-time kingpin of TV and where Rick saw him fall to. We get into so much, this goes to such cool, weird places. It was a really fun episode. Rick is an IQ test destroyer, a remarkably funny and insightful writer. I highly recommend you follow him on Twitter. Please watch his show Lance vs. Rick on YouTube. And let's get to it. Let's talk to Rick Rosner. All right, cool. So, uh, Rick, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for joining me. Sure. You, uh, you actually helped me out with Voting Info HQ early on. You did kind of talk it out in its very early stages, and it motivated me to to push and keep going after a month of two followers, and and now here we are talking, and and I'm really excited to interview you. So thank you for giving me some time. Sure, and thanks for coming up with voting info because it's going to be even more important in 2022. Exactly, a down cycle, not a presidential run. People might have some apathy, and that's what this podcast is kind of all about. Is approaching voter apathy with a little comedy, a little bit of variety. All right, so let's get to it. So speaking of which, comedy is built in your nature and it runs throughout your family. Military service is present throughout your family too. Your brother, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Rosner of the Marine Corps was the only Jewish Marine comedian. What are some of your favorite bits that he did? Well, I, I didn't see a lot of his stand-up work um, because I wasn't his audience. Right. Um, he, he was an observant Jew, like orthodox-ish. You know, Judaism comes in all these flavors. Um, yeah. And he had entire stand-up. He'd go around to Chabad's and, and temples and, and, and do his bits there. Um, I watched a few. Then he, then he also had, he'd do bits for military audiences. And he was in he was in both Iraq wars. He was an intelligence officer and a public affairs officer. In his first tour, he had just gotten married. Oh, and he picked an assignment that um, kind of wasn't as he wasn't fighting in the front lines because he thought right. it wasn't fair to his wife. But then his wife left him for another woman. And he's like, well, dang, I lost out on, on battle. <laughs> right. um, so he, he asked for different assignments in, in the second war. It worked out. It worked out for him. One of his uh, jokes was, I am the only Marine who, when he kills, nobody dies. And that kind of plays on, on what you're saying there with how he didn't want to be the front lines guy, but he still wanted to support the army, the military, the cause. Yeah. And he still did an incredible duty. When that base was attacked, he went out there at the uh, at the request of the commanders, the leaders, 
And they said, look, our guys are shaken. We need laughter. We need jokes. And he went and, and brought what was needed and lifted the morale. So what, what I liked, what I found funniest were his stories about, um, he, he, he liked discipline. He asked to be sent to military school in high school. Hmm. And you, military school is hellacious. New, New Mexico Military Academy down in Roswell, New Mexico. I've had several family members go there and it, it, it's not fun. It's almost hard to imagine without experiencing it, but the strictness, it's the, uh, I think of Full Metal Jacket and the boot camp and that strictness of the uh, of yeah. camp officer and that, that regiment, that, um, that uniformity. And he, he tells stories that were funny and they were like poetry uh, talk uh, about the, the misery there. Like mm. um, he had a roommate who didn't wash his stuff. And like they, they had an inspection coming and the roommate's stuff, was, I don't know where the roommate was, but his stuff was all like not in order. Yeah. And Dave opened up his locker and the, he was hit with a wave of stank. And he just puked right there. Oh and, man! And that to me is like that seems like, like <laughs> yeah, that, that's not 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 for me. But no, but so he liked this movie, but he also liked chaos. He liked yeah. pranking people, and he was he, he was an excellent um, impersonator. Mm -hmm. So he would get on the phone and imperson impersonate oh. generals. Oh and, my god! Like lieutenants to show up at you know, General Cathcart's office saying, yes, you wanted me, sir. And they're like, no, we didn't. <laughs> and, and he's the kind of character that could pull that off without getting in the wrong kind of trouble. He kind and, of- He's all eventually. his career. Yeah. Um, half his coworkers loved him and half of them <laughs> did not love him. Here's a lightning rod, yeah. But I mean, that's, why he, that's one reason he enjoyed uh, you know, wearing a yarmulke as a Marine. Because yeah. people, he said, people come up to him and go, what's that beanie on your head there, sir? And he'd be able to say, beanie, beanie, you call it, you know, any of <laughs> Right. You know, when he, uh, he was working the Shabbat houses, I saw a couple bits. And one of the ones, uh, he said, when I'm talking to folks here, you know, I say Jewish Marine, and they're waiting for me to say biologist. You know? <laughs> like, and another one was uh, his radio handles. Do you know what his radio handles were, jokingly? Uh, no. Uh, Mazel Tov Cocktail. Okay, I've heard that one. And Full Metal Foreskin. <laughs> yes, I've heard both of them, yes. So that's pretty great. He's just hilarious, and I got to see some of the bits, and uh, I see remembering him and remembering your family on Twitter, and, and uh, I appreciate the service of them. I, we've had, I've had, you know, all my, my dad, my stepdad, my um, father-in-law mm -hmm. were all in the military, but it was at a time when you had to be. There was the draft. It was the Korean War era, yeah. and they all dealt with nukes. My dad was a navigator bombardier flying um, A-bombs around in a B-36, and later H-bombs. Oh, wow. Jeez. Um, that's, hard to, uh, that's hard to imagine carrying that cargo. Yeah, it, it's crazy. And that was on a crazy airplane. The B-36 had more engines than I think any other American-made plane ever. Oh, wow. I want to say it had 14 engines, 
well, there were different versions, but it had, it was half jet and yeah. half propeller. And they were always flying around with two or three engines out. <laughs> that's, an, that's an incredible uh, engineering required in that, like sincerely 14 engines. But I mean, for an H-bomb, put as many as you want to protect it. Yeah, but I mean, like H-bombs were crazy too, because one H-bomb, you know, there's never been one dropped in war. Um, mm. a, a healthy sized H-bomb is a hundred times bigger than the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. Jeez. And they go up and they go on training exercises and they get an envelope when they're in midair. He was part of Strategic Air Command. You, got, you should Google it. It's this deal where they used to have jets flying around on a, on a ready to, if the bomb, if missiles were launched, they were ready to fly into Russia and nuke entire cities with one bomb. Right, because of uh, the mutually assured destruction. Right. There's a 1950s novel and movie called Failsafe mm. about a plane that gets into, a U.S. plane that gets into Russia and they can't recall it because the, the, the pilots are suspicious of any recall efforts. And, and right. anyway, I mean, it was... Jeez, a, oh, we love our, our international history, our world history. We're thinking of even launching an international politics podcast to kind of do... It's a, know, pretty decent, Plus. it's a pretty decent movie for mm. you know, I mean, it's really hard to watch a movie earlier than the eighties <laughs> cause they're so slow, but plus like they like to people who know about this stuff say that you blame it on MTV, which came on the air in 1981 with music mm. videos. Right. And in a music video, um, the, you might have a hundred cuts in two minutes, which yeah. is what we're used to now. Yeah, fast stimuli, a lot of things happening. Yeah, but, but the scenes go on forever and they say, oh, they're so obvious in movies earlier than the 80s. Mm -hmm. You know, like we watch superhero movies, like, you know, the, the Avengers Endgame had, you know, like three dozen, five dozen main characters. Yeah. And battles and we're, we're mostly able to figure out what's going on, where everybody is, what's, and, but, somebody from the 60s trying to watch what's going on might just barf yeah from the, the, the vertigo and the because and we were used to we're able to process visual information a lot faster the the juxtaposition is real because i watched uh, one or two of the star wars early last year and i was surprised because i loved them growing up i had the vhs tapes and i watched them and i was surprised it's like five scenes in one movie you know, and it's, but they're great scenes. They're, they're incredible, but it's like, they're really fun, uh, incredible, futuristic for the time, uh, all that. But it's like, you know, now it's like those five scenes are in 10 minutes of Avengers Endgame, just with, yeah, yeah, to your 19, point. Uh, first Star Wars was 1977. Okay. And gotcha. it was, it was the first science fiction movie that looked plausible like mm. where you didn't have to say, boy, these special effects are just pure shit, but. Um, <laughs> yeah. They still look good to me. And, and I, I love all of, all of the new Marvel stuff. I'm into it, but I like the classics too. I'm able to appreciate it, you know, and kind of, uh, it's almost like we have to empathize with, the, with what they didn't have in production. Oh, it was terrible. Like, you know, I grew <laughs> up in the seventies. I was a teenager and yeah. everything sucked except for sex and I wasn't having sex. Right. 
I actually read uh, your Reader's Digest article from 2016, and we'll talk about that later. But I actually got to learn a little bit, a little bit more about you and uh, and how you kind of found your way. And uh, so we'll talk about that maybe a little bit more. I'm curious, what drives you to engage in political discourse? Uh, have you always been interested in politics or? Um, I ran for student body president in high school um, and got elected because I was slightly less creepy than the other main candidate. <laughs> That's always helpful. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was plenty creepy. Um, <laughs> but if you're less creepy. I, I, ran because, <laughs> I ran because I wanted to help people, but mostly because I wanted to get a girlfriend. And I thought if I were student body president, some girl would like me. It yeah. didn't work. It didn't come close to working. And I was, I was a terrible student body president. And after that, I gave up on <laughs> politics until okay. Trump. Yeah. Um, I had to, working on Kimmel, I, I started writing for Kimmel at the end of 2002. And, you know, that was the Bush era. And yeah. regardless of who is president, you're going to be writing political jokes. Yeah, they always hit. Well, I mean, the, the, they're the, always relevant. The reliable, you know, subject. Um, so I became pretty well informed in 11 and a half years of writing for Kimmel. Mm. And then I got fired just in time for the rise of Trump. So I had a lot of spare time to watch the, the Trump thing and be, if you, I lived in New York City for yeah. two and a half years in the eighties. And anybody who's ever lived in New York City already knew that Trump was a piece of shit. That's, that's the stories I've read of people that were local to him, that were around him. He just, he alienated everyone. He rubbed everyone the wrong way. There was a, mag there was a magazine called Spy Magazine that just made fun of everybody in New York. And he was awesome. one of their main <laughs> subjects. Oh, you know, man. Conservatives like to say that liberals have been brainwashed to think Trump is a, is a piece of crap. And my response to that is, is to is well fuck you that's stupid that <laughs> yeah. knew Trump was a piece of crap for decades before oh yeah he, he I mean he tried to run for president kind of half acidly a couple times before 2016 mm -hmm. um, but he didn't you know his serious run was 26 but we he, we knew he was he was a clown and just like a and um, but it didn't there was nobody cared he was a clown because it, it didn't affect us you know he went it was on kind of like do your thing over here you know okay your circus is as long as you don't yeah. get too much of you our know, stuff he, kind he, of he had this show that people didn't watch because it was painful to watch for yeah. the most part right well i think of the central park five ad is the first thing in my mind as being born in 1987 the first thing that i think of with trump early on is that and that is a real piece of shit move. That's a real, I mean, I, you look at the ad, you look at everything. It's pretty clear, you know, you nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, to that, you also cover COVID stats on your Twitter page. And I appreciate that because you have a large base and you're bringing this forward and making the point that, look, it's, it's redundant. It feel it's repetitive and it can create a numbing effect to us, but it's important to have the perspective and to mask up and protect each other. And I appreciate you continuing to say that. Well, when I worked on Kimmel, I'm, I'm pretty good at writing jokes, but 
Yeah, your Twitter's good. <laughs> it's funny. I'm, I'm pretty good, but I'm not the very, I was good enough to, to work on, you know, to be a professional joke writer, but I wasn't the very best joke writer among the yeah. joke writers on Kimmel. So I would, you know, my niche was to supplement the jokes with facts that you could build that would either be interesting or that you could build jokes around. Right. Um, Somebody can yes and you, something like that. Yeah, that, that I would try to maximize my utility to the show in, in whatever ways I could. And it's right. the same on Twitter, where if I can't come up with a joke, I can always go to some horrible daily stats for, for COVID and say, well, this is a, we're having a COVID Benghazi every 81 seconds. Right. And even if it's content in its first form in your mind, it's also at the same time a good service. It's important because there's so much going on and we can't forget that, that first thing that we got to mask up and look out for each other still. Well, like all this morning, I'm arguing on Twitter uh, <laughs> with COVID deniers. Yeah. And, you know, masks are tyranny people. Right. And, you know, when you can throw statistics at them, they may not appreciate the statistics because they don't trust the statistics either, but other people do. COVID right. is now the, it's the third deadliest event in U.S. history. Yeah. And within yeah. about three months, it'll probably be at number one. Mm. Um, now, that's a little deceptive in that the two more deadly events, you know, Spanish flu, happened 101, 102 years ago. Yeah. Um, and so the US population was probably slightly less than half what it is now. So the impact you know, is doubled in terms of the percent of the population who- That was much more serious. Yeah. And then the, right. the Civil War, which is the number two most deadly- That was thing. my guess on what the other one was, yeah. Um, you know, the US population was less than a third of what it is now. So that, mm -hmm. that was- Horrible devastation. Right. Everyone but it's, but what's yeah. happening now is, is still horrible devastation. One American and 670 dead. One senior and 130 dead. Yeah. I, I don't even want to pull the stats I saw from the states because I don't want to get them wrong, but they're alarming. And it's just, let's continue to take care of each other. You, know, you don't have to totally lock down. I'm in, lucky enough to be in a position where I don't have to go to work. Yep. Um, so I'm pretty locked down, but I go out sometimes and you can go out if you just take reason. It's not tyranny to wear a mask. Exactly. It's not. It's just science, <laughs> really. Yeah. And it, 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 it's barely science. It's so basic. It's like if you put a thing in front of your face, the shit that comes out of your mouth won't travel as far from your mouth. The people I've spoken with, I have to break it down to it's science. It, that's the level we're at and you get it. But yeah, it, it's really simple. It's, it shouldn't even be more than that. Um, you know, to your point on Trump, you wrote in uh, Huffington Post on 20, in 2017, a really good article called Super Empowered, How We Turned Into a Nation and a Planet of Assholes. You make a funny and, and a salient point regarding Aaron James, the author, who wrote uh, the author of the book, Assholes, A Theory, and your joke, your point was, if the author of Assholes writes a sequel specifically about you, you might be an asshole. <laughs> yeah, I think there was, it was, he wrote the sequel was, was, I think, called Assholes, the Trump edition. Exactly. It was. 
It was a theory on Trump, something like that. Your article describes like a personalization of social forces that's altered our daily lives. So we wake up and we have Twitter. We wake up, we have this, and it's personalized to kind of cater to what we want. We, ha we have individualized information feeds. Individualized information feeds. I like that. I like how you- And, and it's delicious and irresistible. And it's, it's the deal <laughs> yeah. is that the two thirds of adult Americans are overweight or obese. And when, when you have, it's not a personal failure if two thirds of everybody has the same deal. It's not entirely your fault that you're fat if you, if you even consider being fat a fault. Right. Um, it, it, if, if so many people are, then it must mean that there's something going on that makes it really hard to not be fat. And it's, it's decades of food science and food mm. being cheap and plentiful and often the cheaper food being the most delicious. And the but, lowest grade. Well, well the, the curly fries, at the breaded curly fries at Wendy's. <laughs> I don't even know them yet. <laughs> they're, they go to Wendy's, get the curly fries. They're, they're yeah. so, I mean, they're terrible for you, I'm sure, but they're just great. My wife just got me Popeye's chicken for Valentine's oh, Day. It was close to a Popeye's. That's I mean, good. Yeah. I don't even think Popeye's is that bad for you if you look at the nutrition information. Um, right. but, but, you know, it's still fried chicken. But anyway, it, food is delicious now. If you look, yeah. I, I think this is in the article, I don't know, but if you look at food from the 1940s and before, it's all disgusting. In, in the depression, some recipes were in, made to intentionally be disgusting <laughs> because people didn't have enough money to buy enough food. And so if you made food delicious, they'd want more and there wasn't more. Wow, that's that's a, some creative problem solving that I am glad. Eleanor Roosevelt was in on that, this, this noodle casserole that was just noodles, oh. milk, salt and pepper. And it made this loaf, this brick. Oh, you took slices of the brick and you ate it and it wasn't good. It was just good enough to, <laughs> to, to chew it and swallow and give you basic nutrition, but nobody wanted seconds. Yeah, would you like some more? No, no. Well, good, we don't have any more. <laughs> no, perfect. And the shit that people would put in yes. jello. They had tomato jello mm. and you, people would float corn in it. And corn in tomato jello. Okay. Tomato jello is called aspic. And it's a fancy food. Tomato, tomato jello with slices of olives floating in it is actually yeah. like, it, it tastes really good. And it would be a treat we'd get at family gatherings. But it's disgusting. It's tomato flavored <laughs> jello. Yeah, it doesn't sound, you know, I like blue flavored jello. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, yeah. you know, we're fat on entertainment because entertainment is great. Right. And we're, we're fat on individualized information feeds you know everything we get that comes through our phone is like somebody talking to me somebody telling me something somebody i've chosen to follow uh because they put up great animal videos we're the the kings and queens of our little entertainment empires yeah you know to uh to that regarding the social media the tweeting one of your quotes which was just excellent tweets can spark protest and reform or violence and hate Yet our non-political lives get better and better. And this is 2017. And look at everything that, that came after. And well, yes, okay. So things on Twitter got and all unbetter that. for... Yeah, well, COVID aside, 
Yeah. Moving on, you spent time as a bouncer and mentioned in a Business Insider article from 2014 that you took a few bops to the head. Uh, what is most memorable from your time bouncing and, and how did you get into it? I was going to a gym where these two big guys were bouncers and they were always telling stories about like the fun things they did, like breaking a sink with a guy's head. Huh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and also like, I, I mean, everything I did from the age of 17 to into my early 20s was to try to either get a girlfriend or get laid or, or both. Right, at so least like, you were focused. I was desperate, <laughs> but I noticed these guys, these big guys, that the weights, I was lifting the same amount of weight that they were lifting. Mm. So I'm like, all right, so I don't weigh 220 pounds, but I'm as strong as they are. Maybe I could be a bouncer. Right. And I started and I'd be in a bar where I could maybe meet girls. Yeah. Right. And so I did, the way to get hired as get a bouncer was just yeah. to keep <laughs> dropping by a bar um, and be lucky enough to be there on the night where a bouncer has told the manager to fuck off and left the job. Gotcha. And eventually right that happened. I've had a series of jobs where maybe I'm not ideally suited, but I can make myself useful. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was a 170 pound bouncer and, you know, so I wasn't great at throwing people out, but I made myself useful in other ways. I got really good at checking IDs and cleaning up barf. Okay. So for the first one, in November 1991's edition of the Mega Society's news. Wow, you have done a huge amount of research. I'm a nerd. I love this stuff. Um, so I was, uh, I was reading this, and uh, you were the editor for this, and you said that you have a fake ID update around November 1991. You broke 1,000 fake IDs caught in 1991, the Friday of like December 13th, around that time. Apparently, you worked at Sagebrush and other places, which we know Sagebrush. It's kind of local to us. We're familiar. A little too cool for me, but I still get it. You told a funny story that was like uh, a young man who looked really young, too young for the bar, came over. Uh, he couldn't. Ulysses? No, no. I, I don't know where it was, but you uh, you had him write down his name. You know, sign your name. Yeah. You can sign your name. He couldn't spell his middle name right. And he's like, look, uh, I had a head injury. And you're, you and your manager are like, whatever, get out of here. You know, he comes back with a document saying he, like medical docs showing. He, he came back with a medical file an inch thick <laughs> detailing yeah. the, his head injury. And you got a picture of beer bot for him. <laughs> By your yeah, so the deal is the most people, you can tell fairly quickly um, whether they're using a real ID or a fake ID. Mm. And at the time that I was doing my bar work, Bars were where you went to hook up with people. Yeah. It's no longer really that way because we have the internet um, and Tinder and all that stuff. But bars were really it. So it was very essential that people be able to get into bars. So about one person in 90 would have a fake ID. Mm. And I, I tried to determine whether somebody's ID was real or fake within, well, for most people, because most people are, are going to obviously be legit within five seconds and you know at least 10 seconds at the max because if you take longer than that customers get pissed your bosses get pissed right um, so it's a lot of judgment calls 
and really fast. And it's it's fun and it's yeah. exciting. How fast can you make the call and still be accurate? Yeah. You have a little bit of your brother's love of chaos. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but like every once in a while, you'd get one that was just totally borderline. Mm. And like, I had a whole set of like tells as to whether an ID was real or fake. You know, that stuff as basic as matching up eyebrows, nose, ears. Um, right. Ask Zodiac sign, mm. ask their friend, what's their right. name? Sometimes you would still get a mixed signal and you couldn't decide. And I got way too into it. You know, if it's, if it's <laughs> such a mixed sig signal, you should probably just let that person in because yeah. you can't decide, then maybe the ABC probably can't decide either. Though they Good can point. be- right. The alcohol the beverage liver, control. The yeah. Undercover cops who come in to see- Exactly. So anyway, when it's borderline, the question always is, is this person lying or are they just really stupid? Mm. And the guy who with a head injury, I mean, wasn't stupid, but he did have a problem with thinking because he had a head injury. Yeah, he was slow. So that was one guy who had a problem with his middle name. Another guy at the sagebrush, he was a hillbilly but his middle name was Ulysses. Okay. And he's misspelled Ulysses, but he's a freaking hillbilly and his middle name is Ulysses. So like, how often does he have to spell his middle he name? He just never did. Yeah, he just never did. So it was a natural for him. Man, yeah, that's, a, that's yeah. great. In that article, you also talked about the JFK movie, which had come out at the time, and you pondered the idea of conspiracy being involved and that you thought one day it would be solved. And I'm just curious, we could go into a whole thing on this. I have my own theory that I would love to pitch at a later time with you. Did you find anything new on the assassination of John F. Kennedy for yourself? No, I didn't pay that much attention to it. And, and no. I don't know if you take all the information in its entirety. Um, I don't even know if there's still information that's yet to be released. I know some of that information had like a 50 year embargo. Mm, right. Um, and then it came out in 2013. I don't know if you look at everything, the ballistics, and if there, if you can reach, I, I tend to, based on not knowing much about it at all, tend to think that it was lone gunman. I think that as far as I know, like some of the more exotic theories have been explained away. Hmm. Um, I would love to pitch my theory to you in the future. Uh, maybe if you're interested in it, maybe I can bring you back for another episode and I can give sure, you sure. a friend and I love this podcast and they did like a six or eight hour breakdown of their idea of JFK. They researched it. And I'm going to go through it and, and vet some of their sources and uh, I would love to pitch it to you and see what you think on it because it's okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be persuaded one way or the other. In general, I only think about 1% of the conspiracies you hear about turn out to be true. Right. Like we, we've heard over the past three years, we've heard a gazillion conspiracies, you know, right down to the Jewish space laser bullshit. Oh man. Days ago. Um, Jeez. Yeah. And most of it is just fucking ridiculous. But like uh, sometimes it's like, you know, that the CIA helped bring crack to the <laughs> inner city Los Angeles yeah. turns out to be a conspiracy that was true. Right. That one was one of the one percenters that turned out real. Also, we know Sasquatch is real. His most uh, 
the trait about him is he's elusive. Uh-huh. That's his most special skill. That's why we can't. Well, yeah, like there, there's a guy who ruined more than 500 doses of COVID yeah. vaccine. And yeah. he had a lot of crazy bullshit theories. But mixed in um, with his crazy theories, he says the sky is fake, which is true. Huh. You know, the sky doesn't, ex- you know, it, it, that's whatever's up there. It's not the no. It's what we perceive as the sky. Okay, we're going to get no, it. No, 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 no. The deal is that the, the way you do the joke is you go, well, you believe huh. crazy thing one, crazy thing two, crazy thing three, and then crazy thing four is the sky is fake. Oh. That's the, oh. the, okay. the presentation. Gotcha. Okay. What is crazy is that you can walk outside and you're naked to the universe. Hmm. You know, if gravity reversed, you'd float up and you'd, you'd, you'd end up like... T- just floating for, you know, nothing would stop you for billions of light years. That's crazy how naked yeah. we are to the rest of the universe. But anyway. I, my mind goes to that stuff. I just don't have a physics background, which maybe makes me the perfect person to talk physics because I'm unbiased. Uh, bad jokes. Okay. So you have a YouTube show with your friend called Lance versus Rick. Uh, what is your advice for maintaining friendships with uh, colliding political viewpoints? Okay, well, I, I thought about it because you sent me the questions ahead of time. Yep. Um, um, by the way, I had a dream like two hours ago where I got flown to Vegas to do a three and a half minute interview with, with Penn of Penn and Teller. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And, but I was, as in dreams, I was completely unprepared. And I realized <laughs> that when I woke up that it's because of this interview coming up. I think that's that's good for us. Maybe we'll do an interview with you, with Penn somehow. I think that forebodes well. Awesome. But Ed, what was the question? Uh, so how do you, uh, what's your advice for maintaining friendship? Oh, okay. My advice is Points. to not have very many friends. I can't afford <laughs> to lose Lance. I understand that. <laughs> Lance and the director are really my two only friends right now, besides, you know, my wife and my kid yeah. and our dogs. Um, <laughs> I understand so, that. Yeah, my podcast team is my friends for the most part. <laughs> yeah, so like I can, I've known Lance for 30 years. Okay. Since before he became, since before I became hyper-politically aware and since before he became, you know, hyper-politically conservative. Yeah. Um, so I can see Lance's humanity uh, outside of the, the crazy, like he, he sent me the my pillow. You know the the my pillow guy has come up with a come out with a two hour documentary on how the election was stolen. Yeah, I've heard this and one's bad. I didn't watch it, but I heard it's bad. I, I, he sent me the link, and I'm going to have to like watch at least some of it because we're going to argue about it. Awesome. Um, but he believes the my pillow guy. Oh. But yeah, yeah In America, I mean, he's allowed to. Glad, <laughs> but like I know that there's a lot of stuff like that he believes that he knows that isn't ridiculous. Like he knows a huge amount of history, yeah. Um, both history of art and the history of the time when the art was created. He is a phenomenal artist, unbelievable artist. Yeah, yeah he's, he's super great. Um, it, it's a little tragic for him because he's a great realist artist in a time where people, you know, that's not a, as big a deal as it was, you know, when Rembrandt was working. Right. There are more street styles right now. Pop art is really big. And, and also, if you want something that's hyper-realistic, then hire a bunch of coders to yeah, true. build you a video game. 
True. Uh, do you have a favorite episode of the show? Probably the one where I, I broke a chair. Oh, out of anger or? or... Yeah, I, where I, I, the times where I totally flip out. Yeah, um, awesome. We can't do those very often. Now we can't do them because we're doing it socially isolated. Right. Um, but I used to do it in his studio and I can only do that once because he's got all this art that's, you know, he's got tens of thousands of hours worth of art labor in there. And I can't just be like breaking furniture and having pieces fly around. That's a real bull in a China shop situation. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Well, you actually let me join the show. That kind of got my mind seeing the production, you know, hey, you sent me a text in advance. I understood. Okay, let's reach out to guests in advance, give them prep warnings. So I appreciate you letting me on and everybody, please uh, watch the show, watch Lance versus Rick on YouTube. And I'll post the links uh, on my page and promote it and all too. Thank you. Yeah, oh, of course. So health is of supreme importance to you. You mentioned health earlier uh, and including brain health, preventing cognitive decline, core strength, nutritional supplements. Uh, what do you believe is the key thing that should change in American lifestyles to improve our health overall? I know there are many things, but what is key to you? Well, average life expectancy in America dropped for a couple of years for the first time in a long time mm. under Trump. It wasn't all Trump's fault, but he certainly didn't do anything to make things better. Yeah. Um, and then COVID has knocked down life expectancy. Um, but there are some simple things right. you can do to increase your life expectancy, like floss your teeth. If your mouth is clean, then you're swallowing less bacteria and your body is overall um, has less inflammation. Keeping inflammation down is a big deal. Right. So brush, keep your teeth clean. I'm just thinking simple things. You might want to take a baby aspirin every hmm. day or every other day. That reduces inflammation. There's this gotcha. diabetes drug called metformin. That's on your list. Yeah, I did see that. It's super cheap. It makes you use insulin more efficiently. It too reduces inflammation. So there's stuff like that. I mean, obviously exercise, staying mentally active, you know, eating reasonably well. Though with a lot of this stuff, you just can't, I mean, the main thing you can do to live longer is to be born more recently. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, A, because if you're born in, you know, the year 2000, you're probably going to be alive later in history than somebody who was born in 1960. Right. But on top of that, we're in the middle of an ongoing, you know, medical techn technological revolution that is going to give people all these extra years of life. There's a food revolution in Compton. They just opened up uh, like a block that is vegan black owned businesses. And so there is some really cool things happening all over. People are waking up to this kind of food revolution. There's a lot of stuff you can do, but two thirds of it is gonna turn out to be useless bullshit, but you don't know which two thirds. <laughs> right, so but maybe do it all and, and hopefully we get lucky. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that pisses me off about the year loss to COVID is mm. that's, I don't know how much like scientific progress was lost during the year. Like, I want to live long enough to get all these bonus years yeah. when, when medicine gets really great in, in the 2040s. 
the breakthroughs. Yeah. And, and I'm hoping that COVID didn't like reduce my chances because we lost a year of people, you know, making strides. I think in what would be zoology, uh, cataloging animals, if I'm correct, it was maybe March when, when the quarantine started happening, these groups would like say, hey, go out to your yard, go outside and photograph everything and send it to us. And one person found like it was a hundred or a thousand new species of like plants and insects and things like that. So wow. we're discovering all these new things just by being creative at home. And so maybe in the inverse, maybe we got lucky and somehow people locked in, focused, they had there, we'll talk about it later there, Einstein at the patent office moments, maybe. I hope so. Yeah, let, let's hope so. I recommend everybody read The World's Second Smartest Man Says These Brain Drugs Make Him Smarter uh, by Dina Spector on HuffPost. It's a good read. Yeah, you know, like, I mean, I listed like half a dozen drugs, but the only one I know that works on a moment-to-moment -moment basis is coffee. I got mine. Yep, always got my coffee. Uh, so just uh, to slow it down a little or, or kind of a different track, what are you currently watching? What are you reading right now? Do you recommend anything? Yeah, under COVID, I've been, I mean, my reading has really deteriorated. Like I used to, there were times in my life when I read a book a day. Um, and then now with the internet, with just <laughs> I, I maybe read as many words in a day as I used to, but they're all scattered across tweets yeah. and you know, Drudge Report and Huffington Post and, you know, Drudge Report, by the way, used to be hyper conservative and then it kind of gave up on Trump and the whole thing. It's, yeah. I, I Drudge really it's upset one him. of my go-tos now where it, it's kind of, it's reluctantly not conservative. It's mm. like, all right. <laughs> yeah, they, they kind of finally admit it. Yeah. but They so kind of turned gonzo a little bit almost. Uh, yeah, but and also my eyes have gotten blurrier, which is is mm. annoying. Um, gotcha. I've got I have four. I, people do this when they hit a certain age, where you have reading glasses scattered throughout the house, where you're never more than um, like you know ten feet away from a pair of glasses that you oh. bought for a buck at the ninety nine cent store. Yeah, you see what I got, so I'll be there soon. So going to your writing, to your jobs, uh, you've written for the 2012 White House Correspondents Association Dinner, uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live, The Weakest Link, Remote Control, to name a few shows. You were, we mentioned before, the editor for the Mega Society's Journal. You won a WGA Award for Best Comedy Variety for Music Awards Tributes, which was with a special with the Jimmy Kimmel Live after the- Most of the, most of the TV writing that I, the, the TV writing that I'm most happy with, proud of, least, yeah. um, least hacky is, <laughs> is via, via Kimmel. Cool. I wrote for three shows for him. So well, well, what did you do? What was that? Like, what was, do you have a favorite bit or did you love the process? Uh, what was it about? Okay, well, the, there are bits that I helped come up with or came up with, but I'm, I don't feel that I'm at liberty to claim them because they belong to the show. My partner and I came up with one one prank call for Crank Yankers that I'll take credit, that we'll take credit for. <laughs> okay. um, it went really well. Wanda Sykes called a towing, a tow yard. Yeah. And complained that when she got her car back after it was towed, uh, somebody had left like an 18-inch turd in the back seat. 
And that, that call, she's great. And the call went real well because the guy, like, um, <laughs> he went along with, like, he was defending the place for the first half of the call. Yeah. And then after a while, he realized that this wasn't a normal call and he just went along with it. Oh, and that's great. That's awesome. So I'm, I'm really happy with, and that was a, like some of the best shit we came up with was at the end of like 5 p.m. and we've been coming up with stuff all day and we're, we're cranky. And then that's sometimes the stuff you come up with when you're just kind of pissed off. Yeah. Like what if there's a piece of shit in the back seat? <laughs> like, wait, what did you say? <laughs> what, that was good. Say that again. <laughs> you know, that's awesome. You mentioned a note too. When I was reading the Reader's Digest article, you mentioned with Weakest Link, they had a quota for questions and you decided that you were going to push, you were going to like quadruple the quota, but they based it off of rejections. Well, I was too fancy. I felt like yeah. I was too fancy for the show where I'd been, I'd written for a bunch of, of quiz shows and I was just about ready to sue who wants to be a millionaire that I'd yeah. been a contestant on. And as part of that research for leading to the lawsuit, I like, I read like a hundred thousand who wants to be a millionaire questions from around the world to substantiate my claim. The, the, awesome. So I felt like I was a super pro and yeah. like they had a quota of 25 questions for weakest link. And they were simple, factual questions. Like what's the sooner state, you know? Okay, or, Oklahoma, yeah. Yeah, the capital of what state is Salt Lake City. Really simple. Okay. Yeah, that's like, level one. So I was like, you know, I can do more than 25 of these questions in a day. And so, nice. yeah, like I tried, there was a day when I tried to hit a hundred questions and I was like, and I'd, I'd slop through them because it didn't fucking matter. I thought like, all right, so say I write a hundred questions and 60 of them are usable compared to everybody else where they write 25 questions and, and 20 or 22 are usable. So I've got more rejects, but I've also done three times the usable work of anybody else. Right, exactly. And I, I relate to that. That's why I mentioned this story. I do relate to this a little bit. So anyway, this annoyed them. And it used to, for the first month or two I worked there, mm -hmm. the rejected questions, you could X out of the system because they're no good. See, so yep. right. at some point, they froze the system. So there's a thing called pilotware that all these TV shows use that, that tracks production material. Didn't know Somebody that. Named Pilot is a multi multi millionaire because he came huh. up with the software. And they anyway they they changed the parameters to this show's Pilotware, so you couldn't you could no longer X out your rejected questions. Gotcha. And then they decided to base your job performance on how many rejected questions you had, and so I was quickly fired. The but system changed right on you. Yeah. Was the same week that I filed my lawsuit against another quiz show. So the whole wow. thing, I, you know, I just say I don't believe in most conspiracies. Yeah. But that whole thing was pretty freaking coincidental. There's something, something going on there. Okay. Maybe. I mean, and you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I spent time as an assistant private investigator. I, I kind of want to go back and I want to like work this trail for you. <laughs> I might, I might see what I can uncover. I'm, I'm not, I'm not that good. I don't do it anymore. I mean, I, like the, one of the, like sometimes when somebody's huge in TV, 
Mm -hmm. There's this guy, Fred Silverman, who was known as the genius programming director for, you know, the, the, the exec in charge of, I think, ABC, when ABC put on Roots and all. He revolutionized ABC, I believe, and all of television. Right. But then his time passed, and those people still have to have a job, so he became a, an executive producer on this shitty little game show, um, The Weakest Link. So I'd see Fred Silverman, you know, having his coffee next to craft services, wearing, you know, just a, a sweater like a regular guy. When he was um, the kingpin. Yeah. He was. He was the king of TV. Yeah. And now he's, you know, just a guy, but it's like, you know, I thought about, you know, you know, when I thought, like, did I get fired the week after I filed a lawsuit, you know, and it's like, it's not worth me trying to figure it out because there's Fred Silverman right there. Yeah. And imagine how ruthless you had to be to be the head of a network. Exactly. To be at the top, you have to be cold. You have to make cold decisions. So if that guy is walking around my place of business and I get fired mysteriously, like, <laughs> yeah. What is there to get to the bottom of? It's like, what am I going to do about it? And like, just move on to the next, you know, shitty show. Well, in some cases, that. good show. It just seems like Hollywood, in terms of production, creating shows, it moves so fast. It depends on, you know, what you're, uh, there are like 800 scripted shows right now. So the landscape, you know, is bubbling with stuff in terms of individual productions. That's a lot of content, yeah. You know, it usually takes like eight years to get something into production. You know, you come up with an idea and you pitch it for six years wow. or more. Um, and then once it's in production, yeah, shit can happen fast. But okay, it, it, it often takes forever to, to sell something. I've heard that. And I mean, the amount of pilots that get past, they get a shot and don't move past that point. I mean, it's... Uh... Yeah. Props to everybody who who keeps going, and to you to keep. I, I, I talked to the guy, you know, back when I, we were able to go to the gym. I talked to a, 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 a TV producer slash exec who is always pitching stuff, and I go, "How many pitch meetings do you think it takes on average to sell a show?" And he said, "A hundred. A hundred pitch meetings. Where if I had a show, I'd have to meet with you, the executive, a hundred times. No, you've got you. You might have three or four shows you're pitching. Oh, and I go to a hundred to finally get how to do it. You meet with the various people in okay. networks and okay. And what the generally the 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 best outcome to a pitch meeting is to be asked to develop the your idea a little further and come back because the deal is that like at Comedy Central when I was pitching them regularly, mm -hmm. they maybe had the budget to put, to put on two new series a year. Very thin. You know, they maybe they yeah. may have been able to green light, I don't know, eight or 10 pilots a year, but Comedy Central probably had at least three development execs. You know, so three development execs times, I don't know, at least 400, pitch meetings a year per exec gives you 12 pitch, 1200 pitch meetings a year um, to end up with two shows that end up on the air. So you'd have to be fantastically skilled or lucky to, to have a pitch meeting go to pilot or production. So that really the best reasonable outcome, like when you buy a lottery ticket, you can reasonably hope to win a buck 
or a, a or a, a ticket for another ticket. Um, right. You're probably not going to have the one that gives gets you fifty grand. Right, but the other getting a ticket feels at least almost like a coin flip. But being asked to come back and pitch your idea a little more is a reasonable outcome. It works for them. It fills their day with meetings, and it, it helps you develop your idea. Um, right. So that's what happens. You you pitch your idea at least dozens of times. And that makes sense. Okay. Get, and it, it, most of the input is helpful. And there are still plenty of people with idiotic ideas, or I mean, there's there's um, and you'll get you know unhelpful ideas. But most people know what they like. They know what works. And you you, you look at the Judd Apatow model for you know developing comedies. He gets input from a gazillion people who are proven to be funny. Right. Like the sequel to Anchorman. It was a movie. They released it. And then a few months later, they released a whole second version of it. Same plot, same scenes, but alternate takes of every scene. Mm. They had enough jokes for every scene that they could do different versions of See, the whole That's thing. awesome. And that gives that variety creates such a uh, such a uniqueness because it has so many unique voices. It creates something different from anything else. And like you know, if you have a job where you have to come up with stuff every day, like writing jokes, mm-hmm. you get used to coming up with stuff and like content creating and and yeah, and you know that to get to the very best idea you might have, you should probably try to come up with like twenty things and then just take the best thing. Right. Yeah. But it takes the 20 things to get to the best thing. Yep. So the, that model of, of let's come up with 100 jokes for this scene and take the best three. Um, or, you know, we don't even necessarily know which are the best three. Let's shoot eight of them and see which of, which of them plays the funniest. This is reassuring because we apply a lot of this to our show and uh, to our variety show that we do with, you know, we have like a hundred jokes and we pick one, we write out all these, we just have pages of joke options. And uh, the point is we have no training with this, but it's reassuring for us to hear that's uh, that's you know, like if you, if you watch Netflix, maybe not Netflix now, but Netflix say four years, five years ago, um, maybe there's a bunch of indie movies that end up on there because they're affordable. Netflix can, you know, make a deal for, I don't know, a hundred grand or to distribute the movie. Right. I don't know if that's the accurate number, but any, you can look at indie movies and they're instructive and frustrating sometimes if the unsuccessful (laughs) indie movies. Yeah. Say if, if more money was riding on that movie, they would have done more rewrites. Mm, gotcha. Um, like there are these scenes that almost work or they don't work because they've got cliches in them and, and it's, somebody could have gone through and, and replaced the cliches, the, prat, the obvious pratfall with like a less obvious pratfall. Yeah. Um, and, and if they had the funding, they're picking from a pool of 10 options with their funding. They get the funding, they can pick from a pool of 100 ideas. Yeah. Or just bring in somebody to, to, to goose it. Like yeah. Uh, what's his freaking um, Kill Bill? What's his name? Fuck. Uh, Tarantino. Yeah, Tarantino. You know, has done some of his best work as 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 a hired gun who comes in and puts in little weird, mo- takes out regular moments that you've yep. seen a hundred times in movies. Yeah. And puts in a little weird moment. 
you know, like his is one of his most famous moments that's just not necessary, but delightful is Samuel Jackson and, and Travolta talking about what they call Big Macs in France. Yeah. Oh, putting little Royale with cheese. Yeah, that's and <laughs> yeah, it's great. I want to wrap this up with a final question. And it's kind of a broad question, but I want to. Uh, OK, so you spent some time in high school. You spent about, if I'm not mistaken, like eight or 10 years through high school, right? I kept going back to high school. That's what it was. Yeah. In total. But yeah, I was I was I was in high school starting in 1975 and I graduated for the last time from high school in 1987. Okay, and, and I actually like followed the story a little and it's really remarkable. It's really interesting. And you liken your time through high school to Einstein's time in the patent office. Well, that, that was the last time I went back. Now, okay. I gotta say that 1987 is now, I graduated for the last time almost 34 years ago. Yeah. And it literally was a different time. So I believe that when people hear me talk about this, one of the thoughts in their mind is, oh, you just wanted to go back and get with high school girls. I honestly didn't even think about that. That's Well, weird. I think in the, in the middle of the Me Too movement where everything is sexually suspect, Please. that would be a thought that would occur to people. And so let me say that that was not the case. Gotcha. Now, the first time I went back to high school, in 1978, when I was 18, in 1977, I ran for student body president. I got elected co-president because we had a head boy and a head girl. Okay. And that year was like, I am not going to leave high school a virgin. I am going to get laid. That was a big deal in the 70s. Yeah. Much less so today. But that was, yeah. again, it was a different time. So I went back to high school immediately after graduating high school in a different city with a different family because I had two families because of divorce. Mm. And I was going to get a girlfriend. Um, and I was, I was barely out of high school. I was 18. Yeah. So, and it didn't go well at all. I only lasted like 10 weeks. I didn't, I, I didn't go on a single date. I didn't have any really contact, any more contact or success with girls my next time in high school than <laughs> I did the first time. So like nothing creepy happened. Right, right. Um, and the last odd. time I went back to high school is like, I had this theory of the universe I'd started coming up with when I was 21. Yeah, and this is what I wanted to ask about, exactly. So I did a lot of thinking about it you know, I also tried to sell my story about going back to high school from time to time. I read that too. All yeah. right. So anyway, so I had this- Hollywood and tried to do that, right? I, I, what's that? Didn't you go to Hollywood and try to do that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, very unsuccessfully. Um, and you thought that being in high school helped sell the story a little better. Yes, that was another time I tried to go back to high school. That time I didn't get in for a- It's a great story, honestly. That's a great story as you, Rick the writer, Rick the genius. Yeah, I, I tried to get into Hollywood <laughs> High School Turns out I was on the wrong side of the street to, to go to Hollywood High. So then I went to Fairfax. Yeah, because of how it districts, yeah. How, yeah, school districts work. And yeah. I was gonna get in there, but then they said, no, go back home. We don't have the money to let you in for the last month of high school. Cause by then it was May. Hmm. Uh, and 
prop third it was a long like the registrar was like we i don't have the budget to deal with whatever your bullshit is <laughs> yeah and, so funny. To, and then the last high school i tried to get into was beverly hills high and they were not having any of my shit at all because apparently Beverly Hills High is a really good, really fancy school. And back then people must have been, maybe even now, must have been playing all sorts of district games claiming to live, you know, like in, in cities that have multiple schools, people will yep. lie about their address with good school. So exactly. they, they were ready for me. They thought I was bullshit from word go. Gotcha. They they picked up on it because they had. They didn't pick. They didn't want the flavor of bullshit, but they they didn't care. They just yeah. were like, "Fuck out of here." Um, That's funny. You know, um, uh, you anyway, the last time I went back, it was like, yeah, yeah. "All right, so I want to sit someplace and think about my theory of the universe, and mm. what's a good place where you're stuck sitting about? You know, like you can't go anyplace, and <laughs> it's like, what about those shitty little desks?" <laughs> they have in high school, you know, the desk plus the chair in one, and yep. if you're a normal sized person, you're, you're they're already a little kind of uh, a little roomy, not roomy, not roomy. Oh, okay. For yeah. if you're an adult sized, it's been person, a while. It's been a while. I'm trying to be romanticizing high school. No, they were terrible. You're right. They weren't yeah. terrible. <laughs> you know, you, plus you got all your shit. Anyway, the desk isn't yeah. me this way. Anyway, so and I'm a lefty, and it was for me for righties. Think yeah. about my theory of the universe. Uh, until I get caught, because I'm fucking 26. Of course, I'm going to get caught. Um, and yeah. then what that is like, yeah. uh, that that was really stupid because the the consequent actually the consequences for getting caught back then were not you wouldn't go to prison. But anyway, I didn't get caught. Nobody had uh, when when I went back in '86. The, the, the average teacher's salary in Albuquerque was two thousand dollars a month. People were not getting paid enough to give a shit about what was going on with this old-looking kid. Right. He's not in trouble, whatever. Yeah, so I ended up going for, I went to summer school at one high school. I went to a semester at El Dorado. I, I started off at Del Norte High mm. um, in Albuquerque, then... El Dorado for the fall semester, and then I transferred to Spanish Harlem in New York uh, for my last semester. Huh. You've been all over, yeah. Um, not all over, but more places than most people go in high school. That's a good way to put it, yeah. <laughs> so uh, what Einstein did when he was in the patent office, like you're talking about, uh, basically he described it as his worldly cloister where he came up with his most beautiful ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Freaking, he's working in a patent office. He's looking at people's, he, he's, I think he's just graduated college, university. Yeah. yeah, exactly. About two years, he couldn't find a job. And I think then he got uh, the patent office job. And so he was looking, he was examining people's inventions. Exactly. They were legit and worthy Learning. of a patent. And the thing that, that, that I find most shocking about his job is he works standing up. Hmm. You know, we have standing desks now, walking yeah. desks. Yep. Back then at the patent office, you, you, you did your work at fucking eight hours a day or who knows how much. Like you didn't sit down, you got a standing desk and Einstein is standing for eight hours a day looking at people's stuff. Yeah, like, well, 
for yeah. me. I kind of like it. Um, I did, you know, like I've, you know, I've done a lot of decent thinking in really mm. tortured positions mm. in art class where, <laughs> you know, I've been an art model for not lately, but for decades where you're locked into, I, and I used to, I would pick like insane poses. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they, if you pick a pose wrong, mm. you have to hold it for 20 or 25 minutes. It gets very painful. Right. And Painting your neck a type of way or focus yeah. on to think about to help to take your focus off of how much how uncomfortable it is. Mm. So I would think about physics and also I would take IQ tests in my head. Wow. I'd find really hard IQ tests and and yeah. memorize the problems and then visualize them while I was in these stupid poses. That's but, so I guess, yeah. but having to stand up all day was, was probably helpful to Einstein's focusing. Mm. It makes sense. Wow. Because it required, it required the focus to get off, get your mind off of standing here in, in your case in this. I, mean, I guess probably maybe everybody's standing work back then. Maybe the dial, I mean, it seems but crazy. He took it and he took it and kind of reversed it. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to make this, I'm going to use this as a benefit. And, uh, you know, uh, is your theory of everything, is that your theory on informational cosmology or is that so? Yeah. yeah, but, and it's a very undeveloped theory, but uh, it's, it's, it's well, the universe is yeah. um, an information processor, the same way, you know, the, where it's made up of information that's being processed. Yeah. The same way that our minds are, you know, made up of information that our brain, our brains are processing. Yeah. The way you explained it, I read, I don't remember exactly where I read it. It might've been in Noesis. It was a very fascinating take where you said, what if the universe is folding on itself and information is kind of getting lost through that to where we have like all this data that is basically dark matter from these folding. Uh, okay. So like, I think you can do a lot of, of work by analogizing what happens in our brains and minds and what might happen in the universe. Exactly. And the deal is, so your brain contains a lot of information, but it doesn't contain, your mind doesn't contain all of that information at any given time. Only so much of the information contained in your brain is actively being considered in your mind at any given moment. Right. So what happens to that information that's not under active scrutiny when it's not? And is it fair to say like in interstellar terms that could create perception issues where we perceive something that isn't actually the case? If a universe looks to be near what we perceive as the start of time, well, if time isn't actually starting at that point, then so, okay, so, yes, yeah. so kind of thing. I'm simplifying it greatly. The 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 under IC informational cosmology, the universe has an apparent age of about 13.8 billion years. That it seems if looking, the farther away you look, the farther back in time you're looking. Right. Um, and it, if you do the math on all that, it looks like the universe looks as if it began expanding from basically nothing, from a zero point. The Big Bang, essentially. 13.8 billion years ago. The idea of that, yeah. 
Yes, but my but informational cosmology says that that's more an informational age, an apparent age of the universe that's proportional to the amount of information in the universe. And to my point, you run against the Big Bang. You are not on the Big Bang side. To you know, the, the more time that goes on, the more I think that I'm not entirely against the Big Bang. I just don't think that there was one Big Bang 13.8 billion years. I think it's kind of a rolling bang right. where the universe keeps like boiling water. Exactly. The rolling boil is how you described it. Exactly. And so like the universe looks like it's expanding out from nothing, but it, it kind of always looks like it's expanding out from nothing. That a billion years from now, 10 billion years from now, the apparent age of the universe will still be 13.8 billion years, more or less. Hmm. That that's the, based on the, the size of the universe, the scale of the universe, that's how old the universe looks like it is. But you've got new stuff rolling out. You've got some stuff that's able to stay in the active center of the universe indefinitely. But you've got some galaxies that blaze into life across, I don't know what the, the lifespan of a galaxy is. You know, the lifespan of, of, of stars I don't either. Yeah. can range from, you know, for a big, a huge fast burning star to, to from less than a billion years to 15 or 20 billion years for a, a smaller, slower burning star. Um, and then not all the stars in a galaxy form at the same time. So like the lifespan of a galaxy might be 50 billion, 60, 80 billion, I don't know, I should probably look it up. You know, galaxies start off as a bunch of gas that coalesces into stars, and then the stars, they light up, they, they burn all their fuel, and then they go dark. You know, that probably takes many tens of billions of years. Right, right. Part of IC is that as those galaxies go dark, they kind of get pushed out of the center of the universe that's lit up, and but if you need them again, because they're, they contain information, the universe can bring them back, you know, 100 billion, 200 a trillion years later. Hmm. Because it's, uh, in your way, you described it where it could potentially be, I think it was a, uh, like a, a hypersphere. And so maybe the shape is even different to where then it can... Uh, well, I mean, it's a hypersphere a anyway. The universe is a hypersphere, unless it's some goofy shape that's more <laughs> complicated than a hypersphere, which yeah. I doubt, because like a hypersphere is, is a really efficient shape. It's just a four-dimensional sphere. Exactly. We've got our three dimensions of space. And, you know, time gets in there too, relativistically, but but you've also got a, a, a kind of added, the or universe like skates along the fourth back, dimension, it seems like, from what I read. It it, from what I read it, and I don't do physics, I appreciate you being patient with me, with me as I kind of navigate this. It almost seemed the way they described it with the hypersphere uh, from, I think, Brown University is where I read it, was um, it kind of dips into four-dimensional territory. Well, the, the deal is that, that you can imagine if the universe were two-dimensional, mm -hmm. then a Big Bang universe would be a balloon minus the nipple. Mm -hmm. beach ball that just keeps expanding that's a three-dimensional structure right but the inhabitants of the universe only perceive two dimensions right and it. right they're because they're on the surface of this sphere right and given that we're three dimensional 
the hypersphere is just a four-dimensional sphere. Okay. I'm really into this stuff, seriously. And I appreciate you being patient and kind of uh, explaining it a little bit. Because so the Big Bang universe is a hypersphere where every point is the same. Yeah. Because you start from nothing and then your sphere expands and every point on the sphere, there's nothing special about any point on the sphere. They're all kind of the same. They all expanded outward from this initial point. That's the same thing with the Big Bang universe, but just with an extra dimension. It's almost, unless you're highly trained, you work with this shit every day. Yeah. You have a hard time imagining a fourth dimension, but that's basically what it is. In IC, we're saying, no, not every point is, it's still pretty much geometrically the same. You can imagine it on a hypersphere, but there are points on that sphere that are different from other points. It's kind of a frothy hypersphere where there's a collapse, they're like one end of it. There is a nipple area, basically. Right. You know, you had said something, uh, for one, I love the equivalencies that you wrote about comparing the mind to protons, one of our most, um, one of our smallest levels of information. And you said that there's an equivalency, and you said it earlier in the interview here, there's an equivalency between that and the whole big universe. And I relate that to like local politics. With local po- politics, they are very similar to national politics. The way charters are written, the way laws and bylaws are written, they're very similar to how the House of Reps are written for neighborhood councils. And yeah. so there is a symmetry, there is a synchronicity uh, in hierarchies like that, I believe. And I, so I'm really fascinated by your take on it. I, I would love to, to hear more and learn more, and I want to prepare a little bit more. You wrote it with like Jacobson. Is that who you're, yeah. say we, is Jacobson your co-author? Yeah, he's, oh, he's, I, he's my third friend in the world. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, oh, but, but let me do a disclaimer. Since yeah. I wrote about protons, my thinking's changed a little bit. There's this thing called it from bit. Term was originated by John Archibald Wheeler, I believe, who's a gravitational cosmologist, among other things. Cool. Um, it's the idea that the universe is a computer, which is not too far from the informational yeah. cosmology, except that they're looking for, and so was I, and I guess I might still be, is they're looking for the individual units, computational units of the universe. Right. Now I kind of think yeah. that, that, that the universe is, is looser than that, that there are basic units, but that the way information works in the universe is not as tightly the universe is more like clay than like Minecraft. You know, Minecraft, everything is a Lego and you build it and, and everything. Exactly. It's a block system. It's built on itself. And that's kind of the way information processing works within a within coding within a computer that you're that you have these, you know, units that, that are very distinct and and you still have distinct units of computation in the universe. Mm-hmm but they work a little more loosely with the, like the deal is that within a star, at the center of a, of a star, of the sun, there may be, I don't know, 10 to the 30th, 10 to the 40th interaction, particle interactions per second. Uh, that, may, that number may be off by, who knows, 10 to the 20th, one way or the other, mm-hmm. um, but an incredible um, number of, you know, photon exchanges and, and 
you know, muon, gluon, you know, just uh, electrons and protons and neutrons bouncing off of each other. Right. Just in a computer program, you know, every one that flips to a zero, there's a record of that that, that moves through the, the, the program. In a star, there's no permanent record of all those interactions. They have to happen because that's how the star works. Yeah. But the info that what actually happened, the specifics of, of what electron did what thing with photons, it's, it's, it's also a thing that when two electrons, depending on how they interact, you can't tell which electron is which after the interaction. Two electrons go into an interaction, two electrons come out, distinctly different electrons. You can't label A and B. No, because there isn't. The, 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 the electrons that come out aren't A or, and B. Yeah. On electrons A and B that went in, mm-hmm. they're just two electrons that came out, and there is not enough information to specify. They're not specified. They are they're just, now C and D. When they come out, they're now C and D. There's something else. They're somehow related. But and so there's, there's no record how. of which electron is which. Mm. Um, and since there's no record, which electron is not which. They're just the, the electrons that were part of the process. And the yeah. same thing on some huge fucking scale within a star where these interactions, there's no, for the most part, there's no exact history. You know, eventually yeah. energy from the fusion that's going on makes its way to the surface. It takes a huge amount of time. I don't know. I think it might take you know, once energy is formed at the center of, the, of a star, it might take a century hmm. for that energy to bounce its way. I might be off by a factor of 10 or something, but, you know. To it's get still to, enough to imagine it's not like our time. Right. But, like, there's no record of the history of that photon. Right. It, it's been obscured by all these, inner, you know, there's not enough information in the universe to pin down exactly what happened. Once the photon gets to the surface... Then you can start treating it as if it's an individual photon that might have a history. But until it gets there, the history is obscured and actually doesn't exist. So that's hmm. a much looser approach to information than what happens in a computer. Right. And you know what was fascinating that you tied in your article was all those interactions, all the interactions happening in the universe with the stars, it's happening in our brain. And you actually tallied the number and I, it was some some number I can't I don't know, but it was in the quintillions, quadrillions, some absurd number of how many neurons fire off in our brains throw. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, our brains are tiny compared to the universe, but they still have a lot of interaction. But there's there's a lot of tacit information yeah. processing. There's stuff that we know because our brain acts like we know it. Like the easiest kind of analogy is your your eye can only see about this much in sharp focus at a time. Yeah. When you look at a painting, your eye travels all over the painting and you build a mental picture of the painting. So you think you've seen the whole, you're seeing the whole painting when really you're only seeing a little bit at a time. And really you're not even seeing the, the, the whole mental construction of the painting. Your brain is just reacting and commenting on the painting as if you saw the painting and even that commentary is as if everything is an as if thing triggering familiar cues and things like that 
and understanding as if thinking will be a major like weirdness that we'll have to learn over the next century, the same way that we have learned to, like at the beginning of quantum mechanics, people like to say, nobody really understands quantum mechanics. And even Feynman <laughs> was saying, if you, under, if, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics. Yeah. I'd say after a hundred years of quantum mechanics, there are plenty of people who have a pretty good understanding of quantum mechanics. And I believe that when we really get to the bottom of think, the mechanics of thinking, it will be weird and eventually we'll have to learn how to understand that weird. Yeah. Well, to that point, I mean, when we understand our level in that way, I believe to your theory, it's going to help with understanding the hierarchy of the rest of the universe. Well, I, I think it's the, it's Micro one of level. the last hard problems in, yeah. in figuring shit out that's left. Yeah. Um, there will always be stuff to figure out. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> and, and there will always be like, astonishing new breakthroughs that change our perspective on things. Hmm. Um, we think we're doing, in, in computers with multi multiple cores, we think we're doing massively parallel information processing, but we're not doing information, linked information processing to the point that it's consciousness. But I think that becomes unavoidable in sufficiently sophisticated information processing systems. Are you, is it, I may be off here. Is quantum systems going to help with that? Not to a great extent. People like to turn to quantum because quantum seems hard to understand and a little bit magical. And, and for, like, a, for a nerd that isn't really into this stuff, like I don't know physics, it's a great buzzword. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, quantum, you know, in a nutshell, quantum mechanics is the math of how things behave when they have incomplete information about themselves. Mm, right. The universe doesn't have enough information to completely characterize itself. And in fact, having complete information is an impossible paradox because the more information you have, the more information you need to characterize the additional information and you, you can never get there. Mm. But, and when, but when you have incomplete information, the, the universe knows how, what it is doing as if it's a giant Tarantino gunfight where every <laughs> particle is shooting particles at every other particle. Yeah. And those interactions define every particle in the universe. And the more people you have, the more particles you have shooting particles at other particles, the more <laughs> tightly defined you, you can define where things are, but you can never you, you can never have an infinite number of, of gunfighters. So you can't have infinite. You're not every you're not hitting something with a bullet every infinitesimal fraction of a, of a second. Right. And even if you were, then you'd have an infinity of bullets that themselves would have to be defined, and you didn't need like an infinity squared or an infinity to the infinity power of bullets, you'd never get there. Right, so you because... have incomplete information and the quantum mechanics just describes what happens when you have incomplete information. Right. The, the, the best known example being, if you don't have enough information to tell, if you have a bunch of, of holes in a sheet, mm -hmm. and shooting light through the sheet, you know, photons, unless you have detectors on each hole in the sheet, you don't have enough information, you can't tell 
which hole a photon went through. So it turns out with incomplete information, each photon, even if it's a single bullet, went through all the holes. Because mm. you, you can't tell which hole it went. In the absence of being able to tell, then everything that could happen kind of happened. Right. That's, it, it makes sense when you say it. If you ask me to repeat it back to you, I would have to get a book, give me about an hour. You know I could if I had an hour, but uh, that it does make sense though. Richard Feynman called it the sum over histories. You take all the possible ways that a, a, a photon or some other particle can go from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. You add up all those histories and you end up with the actual path that it took. And the it, paths that don't yeah. cancel each other out, um, if, because wavelengths that aren't lined up can cancel each other out. All the wavelengths, that, all the paths that, that don't cancel each other out, they add up, they sum to the actual path. Which means, in terms of that, that sheet with holes in it, mm -hmm. all those paths add up to the path, which is yep. all the paths. Right, and you know that after the path has been traveled, and you can go back and look at the data backwards almost, and look at the path it took. Yeah, it, it, it yeah. Then Once it, you have it, the it, result, where it, each path is kind of like a handshake between yeah. the past and the and the future, the past and you know, and it's yeah. I, I'm still with you. I'm still hanging with you. And you know, then you get into the tacit stuff where you can say, well, well did the path really did, did the paths really occur, occur at all and then you say well it's as if they did and then yeah. and, and so like we would get more weirdness to come that takes like uh, quantum stuff even further it reminds me of like communication theory where there's different ways you communicate and i perceive it as i'm communicating with symbols and you perceive it as i'm communicating with an order you know or i'm doing it with emotion but as long as the effect of <laughs> It's what happens as a consequence. Right, um, exactly. Yeah. It is the big deal um, as opposed to, yeah, the, the, the message. Yeah. It's the effects. Right. And there's a version in uh, communication theory. I took a couple classes just to, you know, last year I took some free classes. And it's like uh, that is one version where um, the communication is defined by the result. And in this case, that would be the quantum. Uh, Parallel, it seems. Yeah, that, 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 that's a, a wonderful thing and also a terrible thing because, <laughs> yeah. um, like at the end of life, there's a zero result and everything that happened within a consciousness. Yeah. Um, when that vessel for containing the consciousness is, you know, gets old, dies, whatever, um, the net informational result is zero. It's oh, thank what, God for Twitter. It's what lets us eat chicken. Yeah. Because we treat chickens like shit and we kill. Man, yeah. Like, I don't know, like in America, it's like, I want to say 40 billion chickens a year. It's in the tens Oof. of billions. Jeez, yeah. And it, it would be really hard to, you know, but we think, all right, but the chicken's dead. So like uh, game over for the chicken. The suffering is erased. Uh, in our uh, our biography, our profile of John Lewis, he talked about uh, how he was five years old. He took care of 60 chickens on his farm in Alabama, and he was in charge of the chickens as a five-year-old as he started to help out. It's 1945, and he 
his whole family said, oh, stupid birds, smelly birds, dumb birds. He would look at them and he'd preach to them. And he would, he would, he saw dignity and he saw this grace in their passive resistance, in their passive life that was dignified. And, and he really, really found respect and started to first mold his own civil rights philosophies, his preaching, all that. Um, so it's very interesting you bring up the chickens this week, of all things. Uh, well, that, that's interesting. And it's like Twitter, one of the greatest things on Twitter and probably other social media is animals showing that they are conscious. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like it's just like dogs figuring stuff out. Um, yep. It's wild. Some of the stuff is wild. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, well, you know, I'm going to say our show is going to endorse your theory, uh, peace and resist. We believe informational cosmology is the answer to everything. It's the theory of everything. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> For what that's worth <laughs> in the physics community. <laughs> you know, my last thing, really, I'm curious, uh, you got five degrees from the University of Boulder. Uh, what are those five? Oh, no, 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 no. Went to the University of Colorado, my hometown school, for like six years. Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't take it seriously. I, I, I racked up a year of Fs. I just could, if I didn't like a class, I just quit going. Okay. And, and so, like, I didn't graduate. Yeah. And then I'm living in Los Angeles. And my wife is working at a fancy company called she's you know, she's helping you know manufacture products for them gotcha. i'm not familiar but that's cool that's good. all right so in the 80s was a very it was a it was a small company that be, suddenly became very prestigious cool it was the it was the dynasty era the you know the the dallas era the people the big shoulder pads the big jewelry the big, big hair <laughs> yeah and um was a, became a, a very successful fancy brand. My gotcha. wife started working there and she'd come home and she'd say, you know, there are these women wearing, you know, Chanel or Chanel knockoff outfits and huge jewelry. You know, what, what happened was you took a bunch of people at a small company, gets bigger and their insecurities, they became, you know, there were a bunch of insecure people as far as I know it. Now, my wife would yell at me for talking out of turn. I mean, there were also <laughs> great people at but there was a lot of, of status showing there. Right. Um, gotcha. And I was mostly unemployed. You know, I was I was modeling. I wasn't working in TV. I was modeling naked. I was bouncing bars. I couldn't get my wife like fancy jewelry. But I did research. Mm -hmm. Found out that the markup on jewelry is like 500 or 1,000%. And if you buy the raw stuff, if you buy the stones, if you buy and, and put together jewelry, yeah, put together jewelry that looks super fancy for not much money. Interesting. So I, so I started going to school again because CSUN, Cal State Northridge and Pierce College, a community college. They it took classes at Pierce, yeah. So I started going there because taking jewelry classes so I can make my wife fancy shit to wear to work. Very cool. And then I'm like, all right, I'm back in college. Very I'm cool. 30 years old. Maybe I'm a more mature student. Yeah. Maybe I should, you know, complete my degree. And so I started taking classes again, legit classes. Turns out, mm -hmm. no, I'm still a lazy student. <laughs> um, if I like a class, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll do okay. If not, then I'll just drop it or mm -hmm. just quit going. But this, so I was really not a lot closer to getting my a bachelor's degree, but then I found a school called, at the time it was called the University of the State of New York. Now it's called, then it was called Regents College. Now I think it's called Excelsior. Okay. 
of after their flag. It's a, it's a distance learning school, mm. and they let you test out of stuff. You could take the GRE subject <laughs> test. Oh, that's made for you. <laughs> yes, because I'm great at taking tests. I'm terrible yeah. as, as a student, but I'm great at taking multiple choice tests. Yeah. So I took a dozen GRE subject tests. The tests you're supposed to take if you're majoring in that subject and applying to grads. And if you get above a certain percentile on that test, that university would give you a year's worth of credit in that subject. What a deal, geez. So I took 12 of those tests in 11 and a half months. Yeah. I earned 12 years of college credit. I fulfilled the requirements for graduating with eight majors, but they limited me to five. Oh, it was the five majors. Okay. So I graduated. I fulfilled eight majors. I graduated wow. five majors. Wow. Because um, I'm good at taking tests. Jeez. So what were those five they let you uh, graduate with? I, I think I did math, physics, literature. Um, and then I don't know what else because I did poli sci, I did psych, I did soci. That's awesome. Um, you just hit it all, biology. really. I did yeah. major biology Jeez. but so anyway five of in there the whatever the five that sounded the most you know the least mushy because there were some soft awesome. stuff. right well uh that's pretty much it uh i do have the one bonus question if you want to play along with the wrestling question yeah uh, well, now, say it yep. again you are a wrestler what is your wrestling name <laughs> um I, I should have thought about it ahead. Of, I can tell you what my stripper name was. Yeah, that can be a wrestling name too. <laughs> that works. Hot. And it was a terrible name. Well, yeah, what was it? <laughs> it was hot. What was it? H O T. It was hot. See the, hot. Come to the stage. Okay. And it was a bad name because it's too short. Yeah. Uh, because you can't even understand what you're saying. And it's, it's, it's a hot I'm coming to the stage. It, it doesn't sound like anything. What it you sounds like, a, like, you know, um, more syllables. Delicious yeah. diamond, come to the exactly. stage. Exactly. Exactly. Delicious diamond. Lassie, lassie, come to the stage. Okay. One like muddy syllable. You know, you, let, you also cured something for me. If the wrestling question doesn't work, I just asked the guests, okay, give me your stripper name. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's really funny though. All right, good stuff. Oh, wait, wait, no, wait. wait. Um, um, somebody called me back when I was like being naked a lot, um, also trying to show yeah. I was smart. They called me Rick the Wad Einstein. Rick the Wad Einstein. <laughs> which is based on John Holmes, a porn star of the 70s. Oh, okay. Um, known for having like an 11 inch penis yeah wonderland with uh what's his name uh, right he was also like a, a psychopath who got involved in some bad crime right yeah exactly um but uh his one of his poor nick's names was was johnny wad oh okay that's where that came from okay yes so <laughs> so rick the wad yeah wow <laughs> no but that's funny that's great because okay man well uh, Rick, thank you, honestly, for joining me. Uh, Thanks for putting up with me for... No, are you kidding? Uh, you, you, I consider you almost like a Twitter friend or something. I don't know, but I just... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you might end up being my fourth friend. Hey, well, you're like my one, two, three. Yeah, you're four or five for me, right on. Uh, you should come back. Let's talk JFK and we'll talk just more physics or something. I don't know. Great. All right. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks. Uh, and my best to your family and everybody with everything going on, to your friends. And yeah, thank yours, you. too. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're, we're all going to get through this. We are. It's so close. I, I keep yelling yeah. on Twitter. Don't be the last person to, to get sick with this shit. Exactly. Exactly. 
like the, yesterday they got 2.1 million vaccinations into Americans' arms. That's if, great. If we can keep going at that rate, maybe get it up to two and a half million, you know, by by July 4th, mm. we might be able to, to go to a July 4th party and only be slightly a dick for going to that party. <laughs> Just, and, and that's enough. That's that's gonna work for everybody because I want us to like have a big like national barbecue where everybody goes out on a Saturday and everyone cooks at the same time or something and like sit ends up licking strangers, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, let's just throw all, let's go back and throw everything we learned out the window. Cause we all, we want it. We missed the flu. You know, we want to get all that back. We need to get back to you know, like the, after the Watergate and Vietnam in, in the mid seventies, America went on a crazy sex fest. We were, huh. the seventies were just a crazily promiscuous time. Yeah. Um, because we, we had gay lib, we had the pill, the birth control pill. Yeah. Um, we were, you know, we, we'd gotten over the hippie era, the Vietnam era, the Nixon era, and it was just super heating. It was the disco era. <laughs> yeah. I have family. Years, and then fucking everybody gave everybody AIDS and herpes and people like calm down. Right, um, right. They're like, whoa, whoa, we should hit the brakes. <laughs> Yeah, maybe when everybody gets vaccinated, we'll have another couple of years of people, you know, just rubbing up on each other. I wouldn't be surprised if like vaccinations say they're end of this year, they're good. In like two years, you'll be on the pod again and I'll have like three kids with me. Nice. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, actually, uh, last thing I had, a, uh, I'll just say I had an older family member who mentioned that Van Nuys in the 80s was a crazy place. So oh, yeah, like Van, Van Nuys Boulevard. It's not quite in Van Nuys, but it is Van Nuys Boulevard. Yeah. used to have the world's major uh, porn modeling agency just right. They had a sign right on the street. Oh, there you go. It it's, was like it said, figure models wanted. Oh, they, they were direct about it. Okay. I think it was, I want to say it was run by a guy named Jim South. And you just go up to this, I'm sure, dingy set of offices on the second floor and that's where a bunch of porn careers began, right yeah. on the fucking boulevard. Well, you know, I didn't right think across from where my <laughs> wife and I go to get a frozen yogurt. Right, how times change. And I didn't expect it, but now I need a shower after this interview. Just okay. last bit. <laughs> but All right, thank you. This was great. This was really fun, Rick. I appreciate it. Me too. Uh, and and your, your theory on cosmology is fascinating. It's seriously good stuff on you and uh, uh, Jacobson's part. Thank you. All right, cool. Well, talk to you soon. All right, bye. Bye. Hot damn, that was a great conversation for a second time in a row. A major thank you again to Rick Rosner for joining us. I've always been totally intrigued by interstellar physics without ever having taken a physics class. Go figure. Beyond that, the bouncer stories were so good, the sink-breaking story makes me think of a wrestling match immediately. His brother's comedy is hilarious. Lieutenant Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Rosner is the only Marine who, when he killed, nobody died. Rick and his friend Jacobson made a theory of everything that is legitimately worth reading more about if you're into that kind of thing, and if you want to remove the filter of me from informational cosmology. Please follow Rick at Dumbass Genius on Twitter, and watch a show on YouTube, Lance vs. Rick. Thank you again to Rick. Thank you for your time. You're gracious again with it. This was a lot of fun. This went to such weird, cool places. And we're going to have you back to talk JFK. 
Give me a follow at Voting Info HQ. Follow our show at The Resist Pod. Thank you for listening. Keep on resisting. If the author of Assholes writes a sequel specifically about you, you might be an asshole. <laughs> if you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us at patreon.com slash votinginfohq.